Hey listeners, Jonathan here. I'm dropping in on the back catalog of episodes to let you know about a very special workshop that I'm putting together in April for fans of Mindful Money. In this workshop, I'm going to be covering the path to financial independence, or what we used to call retirement. I want to show you how to create an income stream that rises to meet your rising cost of living and lasts the rest of your life. I want to show you how to build a simple, resilient portfolio that requires the least worry and effort. This is how I manage my own money. And I want to show you how to manage and adjust income through a life of rising costs and volatile market. And as per usual, we're going to bring uh, the focus back around to those things we know add to happiness and support well-being when you do finally reach financial independence. You can register at the link below, courses.mindful.money forward slash mindful dash retirement dash review dash workshop. Thanks. I hope to see you in class. And as an investor, like I'm also very transparent about the fact that I started investing with my parents' money and then that turned into something else after a while. But like my, you know, I went to see dad for the down payment and it was dad who co-signed my first couple of mortgages. And so I had a kind of an easier road through that than a lot of people who don't have that support have. And I think it's worthwhile mentioning because, you know, at the risk of like, once you succeed, people who try to make it look too easy. I don't think that they're doing other people a service because you really want to like let people know like this is where I had challenges. This is where maybe I'm the person you listen to, but like maybe on this subject, I'm not the person you listen to because I didn't face that particular kind of adversity on my journey. Do you think money takes up more life space than it should? On this show, we discuss with and share stories from artists, authors, entrepreneurs, and advisors about how they mindfully minimize the time and energy spent thinking about money. Join your host, Jonathan Dio, and learn how to put money in its place and get more out of life. Hello and welcome back on this episode of the Mindful Money Podcast. I'm chatting with Terry Schauer. Terry is a property manager and a real estate investing and property management coach. She has a master's from Oxford and a PhD. She's a Two-time world champion anything is impressive, jujitsu, one <laughs> and whatever that is. So her her number one bestseller, The Mindful Landlord, has recently been redone with lots of additional updates that she put into it. And I wanted to chat with her about, you know, how she develops real estate investments and how she coaches and just talk to her about money and earning on this episode of the Mindful Money Podcast. A couple other things about Terry. She is the host of the Real Estate Investors Club podcast, and she co-hosts the Mindful Wealth Podcast with yours truly. Terry, welcome <laughs> to the Mindful Money Podcast. Thanks, Jonathan. I know that we get into this, like the depth of stuff in the Mindful Wealth Podcast, but I wanted to get some nitty gritty from you today. So I'm glad you've agreed to join me here. To start, most listeners to this podcast don't know who you are. Where do you call home? Where are you connecting from? Tell us a little bit about you. Yeah. So I'm in Montreal, Canada. And I've been doing real estate for over 20 years. Mostly the hat that I wear has been that of the property manager. And then that sort of turned into investing myself. And as my like real estate career has gone on, I've discovered that the best place or the most lucrative place to be is as the investor sitting behind. So I do have a property management firm, but that's slowly taking less and less space and the investment business is taking more and more space. And then, you know, I guess lately... In the last few years, I became interested in coaching and kind of helping other people get the same thing out of real estate that I got out of it. And, you know, you and I went on this kind of adventure together to start a podcast. And so that's also become something that I'm interested in doing just because selfishly, I use it to educate myself and follow my own interests. But I think that those themes 
or like, you know, and specifically in real estate, that information is interesting to other people. And so I want other people to be able to share some of that discovery along with me. Yeah. I mean, it's a beauty of podcasts. I mean, you can find yeah. all kinds of information you can. And, you know, if I called up somebody randomly and said, Hey, could I have a conversation? They'd be like, no. But if I say, Hey, can I interview for the podcast? They're like, sure. So it's, it opens a lot of Absolutely. doors. Cool. <laughs> Where'd you grow up? What was it? Montreal? Montreal. You did. Okay. Yeah. So when you were growing up, what did you learn about money? You know, did you learn anything about money? What's the story, you know, as a kid in Montreal? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's like two questions, right? There's what's the story about money in Montreal, which I think maybe if a lot of your listeners are in the US, no, it's it might not be the same story, right? And I think that Canada is a different ecosystem. And I think it's an ecosystem in which everything is a bit more compressed. So if you want to think of Scandinavian countries, we're not quite a Scandinavian country, but we're not super far from there either. Like we have a lot of social network, we have a lot of things that sort of redistribute wealth. And so I think that some of the extremes are a bit smaller, maybe than in the US. As far as my background, like, you know, not without to not hide anything, you know, I come from a pretty privileged background by Montreal standards, I went to private school, grew up in a good part of town. And then what got said about money in our house, like, so my dad's a, an entrepreneur, he owns a manufacturing business. And but he comes from Austria, his, uh, my grandparents were poor, like pretty poor, they were, you know, gardeners, factory workers. And my dad really had this kind of rags to riches, pull yourself up by your bootstrap story. And that's really like the foundation myth that my brother and I kind of grew up with when we were kids. And so my dad, two things, the first sentence was, in life, you can be a hammer or an anvil, be a hammer, <laughs> which is a bit intense. And uh, the other one is, if you want more money, make more don't save, don't worry about saving, don't worry about cutting costs, but make more money. And so that really like both my brother and I went on to become entrepreneurs and, and we kind of applied that. And, you know, both of us, I think were employees for about two or three years of our lives and that was it. <laughs> so you couldn't hack it as an employee. No. Right? <laughs> so what are the lessons about business ownership? Did he take you to the office, show you how things run? Or was it just, he goes to the office, he comes home and you kind of picked up entrepreneurship on your own? No, I mean, like I actually worked for my dad for two years. I was an admin assistant in the office for one year and actually was a, a did like a welding apprenticeship when I was 16 <laughs> in the shop. Yeah. Brazilian jiu-jitsu and welding. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's actually more similar than you'd think. You. <laughs> no. And like we got taken to the office. The business also grew a lot when we were young. And so when he first started it, we were living in an apartment above the factory basically. And mm. so at that stage, like when there wasn't babysitting, like we would end up in the office playing around while my dad was working. And then you know, we bought a family home. And so the distance like got a little bit wider, but it was the same thing. My mom worked also. And so when she went on business trips and the childcare wasn't there, like dad took us to the office and we kind of like played in a corner with the paper clips and <laughs> super fun. Yeah. Super fun. Yeah. Do you have any experiences of that period of time that you can point to and say, Hey, this helped me develop my philosophy around money or my current philosophy around running a business? From that time, I mean, like, look, I think it's kind of funny because in my childhood, it was more an issue for me to like hide my background because, you know, again, like I played ice hockey before I got into combat sports, but both combat sports and ice hockey are pretty like kind of popular. Yeah. Is ice hockey different than a combat sport? Well, women's ice hockey. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Just, yeah. just to be clear. 
Yeah, but they're both kind of like lower socioeconomic pastimes. And so it was like, you know, one time my mom dropped me off in a nice car and like I never heard the end of it. She dropped me off to practice like, you know, in a nice car or whatever time it was. I don't remember. But like then it was like Terry shout Terry like Beverly Hills 90210, you know, like that was my nickname on the team. Yeah. And so like for me, it was more a question of like developing kind of a shell where I could walk in anywhere and people not necessarily know what part of town I came from or like what my upbringing was and I just want to be taken like at face value and not for a privileged kid from a privileged background. And I think that is kind of what pushed me to want to succeed in sports because it's a a domain where if you got a leg leg up financial, if you have a leg up, it's not going to help you that much in the gym. It might help you because you have some free time, but like it's not going to, you know, make help your performance. And so for me, that was like a way of taking that out and proving to myself that I was able to succeed at something in which I hadn't had a leg up in. So, I mean, that's, I find that this sort of goes to the next conversation we're going to have like in a couple of weeks, but I find that fascinating just how that upbringing affects who we are and how you, you felt you had to hide the fact that you were privileged specifically because of, you know, the activity you were pursuing. And no, no, and to prove also to yourself that like, you know, a privilege, if it does give you a head start, like I didn't want a head start, I didn't ask for a head start, you know, like obviously it's nice, but like for me to really feel like I earned what I got, it had to be in something that was not financial because I felt like I was already starting with such a leg up on other people that I didn't, winning in that field didn't really feel like winning to me. It felt like, you know, everybody's trying to hit a three pointer and I hit a layup and, and want to call myself something amazing. You know, it doesn't really, didn't sit right with me. So how old were you when you realized that this, you had this privileged background? I mean, then how long until that translated into what? I got to kind of hide this. No, super young. Like, I mean, I started playing inner city ice hockey when I was 13. And back then they put girls on boys teams because there weren't women's teams. And uh, it was like that my mom dropped me off, like almost to the first practice in a nice car and everybody started making fun of me. And I was like, okay, no, no, no. (laughs) Yeah. So that hit right away. No learning required. Right. Yeah. Was it, so it seems that's very organic. It just comes right out of the experience as a kid, you know, being made fun of, et cetera. Were you ever okay with it? Did it translate into, yeah, I have some privilege and yet I'm still, you know, I can produce in jujitsu or welding or whatever it is. And I can sort of, you know, I've earned it now. When did that come about? You know, I like Jonathan to be totally honest. Like, I don't think it ever became okay. Like, you know, and I think then before going into business, I actually picked an academic career and there was an aspect of that as well, which was I wanted to, you know, be a prof and kind of succeed in that environment. And again, that was something where really it's about your intellectual ability and not about your ability to make money. Because again, I felt like I wanted to be in an environment where that leg up wasn't there. And then after having done a PhD and being a bit disappointed with, you know, what academia, there's some aspects of what academia has become in terms of that, you know, a very narrow kind of perspective that I feel like you could take on the world. Then only then did I end up going into business. So it was like really in my thirties that I actually was like, no, okay, I'm, I'm going to just do what I should have done in the first place and go into business. <laughs> no, but do you take any, so both through athletics and through academia, you chased down something where your privilege didn't really help you. It probably helped you pay yeah. for the, yeah. the education to some extent. It probably helped you get a coach and the free time for jujitsu, but you did have to put in extra work. So are you still kind of apologetic about the the privilege you had to start out? I mean, I think not in sport and not in, you know, my intellectual pursuits, let's say, but definitely, you know, in to the degree that I've succeeded in, I always like kind of in my own mind. And it, when I have conversations with people, the asterisk does come out, you know, like I'm not hiding where I come from. And I do feel like it's kind of, 
I don't know, I feel like it's worth mentioning because I think you don't succeed from the same place, right? Like somebody who really came from nothing and ended up where I am in the business sphere had to work a lot harder than someone who, you know, and as an investor, like I'm also very transparent about the fact that I started investing with my parents' money. And then that turned into something else after a while. But like my, you know, I went to see dad for the down payment and it was dad who co-signed my first couple of mortgages. And so I had a kind of an easier road through that than a lot of people who don't have that support have. And I think it's worthwhile mentioning because, you know, at the risk of like, once you succeed, people who try to make it look too easy, I don't think that they're doing other people a service because you really want to like, let people know, like, this is where I had challenges. This is where maybe I'm the person you listen to, but like maybe on this subject, I'm not the person you listen to because I didn't face that particular kind of adversity on my journey. So so let's go back to that beginning because it didn't start with investing. It started with property management. So how did you get started in property management? I know a little bit of the story, but I want listeners to know the story. Yeah, no, it's really funny. So I went to a University of Toronto when I was 19. I moved out of my parents' house to go away to college and there was no space left in student residence. So I ended up living in this like big Victorian co-op that was a complete disaster like no one was taking out the garbage it was a big mess and so the next morning they voted me house manager and so then you know you I ended up managing this with really no sticks and no carrots because like I didn't have the owner's you know powers to force people to clean up or do whatever so it was really a question of like just leaning on people to do their chores and then organizing a system that would keep the house running properly and so you know that was that <laughs> So one day in, the next day, yeah. <laughs> you were running this and trying to assign chores to fellow 19-year-olds. Yeah, And exactly. I'm just curious, did they do the chores? <laughs> well, not at first, but then like I developed a system, right? Because then it's like group accountability, right? So like then we have, you know, I set up house meetings and then shaming, like- Shaming, shaming, very Public shaming. <laughs> <laughs> and Bob didn't take the garbage out. So Bob, you get a, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So eat all his toast, you know? Like- <laughs> So did was that were you paid for that or did you give any benefits for that? No, I just didn't the house manager didn't have didn't have chores. Their chores was to organize everybody. And like it was also because so like this is where like you know the property manager's character like I like things to be clean and organized and like I couldn't live in a squat, right? And so then it it becomes the fact that like you know when it comes to the worst I would be the one who would go behind and end up picking up after the people who I couldn't coerce into doing it themselves. So Ugh, so you had to manage and clean up after people that would not yeah. participate. Yeah. Which is pretty much, you know, property management. It's pretty much what property management is. <laughs> so how does that translate into, yeah, let's yeah. buy a building and manage it. You yeah. didn't manage the building for yourself originally. You managed the building for somebody else originally. Yeah. So, well, then what happened is that I like the living model so much, like this kind of like big student house. And, you know, I went on to do a PhD. And so like each time I moved cities, I then moved to Vancouver and was like, I can't find a place like this to move into. So I'm going to create one. And then I asked dad to, you know, co-sign a lease with me on a big house. And then I portioned out the rooms in the house. And at that point, it was like I was using that to basically live for free or for lower cost because I was renting the rooms to other students. And we had this like kind of community there. And then after I did that in Vancouver for two years, I moved back to Montreal and was like, dad, look, I did this by myself for two years in a rented house. Why don't we buy a house and let me do it? And so then that turned into a down payment and a mortgage cosign. And then I just created the same model and then cookie cuttered that again and again till I was running like a community with 50 rooms of which I owned, I think it was like, I owned 
I don't know, maybe nine of them in the end, but the rest was the business model worked so well that I was then able to package it and sell it to other landlords in a not great area as a way to have good tenants, close management, and to get some upside on the rent. So I've talked to many, and I know that you talk to more than I do, but many people in real estate, and there's all kinds of different ways to get into real estate. Can you kind of just give us a broad picture? You know, you, you wrote the book, The Mindful Landlord. So I'm guessing you have a pretty good understanding of the broad picture of real estate investing and real estate management. Can you lay, the, lay that picture out? Well, so getting in, I mean, I think there are different like places at which you can get in, right? And so I think what's interesting about my story as an example is that basically what I did is called house hacking. And this is what you can do like when you're a student basically and like you don't even have down payment money, right? Like the fact of renting a house or renting an apartment and selling out the rooms or doing Airbnb or something, like you can actually you know, bring your living costs down to zero and save money for that down payment eventually. So I think this is like, you know, maybe the lowest level at which you can get in, which you don't actually need to even own the place. Like you can do it as a tenant or you can do it as a manager where you skim some off the top, right? Because like, let's say my, at the, when I started, my clients wanted a particular base rent. And then the deal I had with them was that over that, I got to keep the money and I made sure that the property was well managed, right? So that then becomes maybe like, let's say the, the ground floor, like the least capital and lending intensive way to get in right? Then, so maybe a model that's a bit less used in Canada, but I think more popular in the States is the single family home investing. And so then people, you know, buy a home, renovate it, and then put some tenants. In Canada, we have lending laws that are really a bit of an obstacle to that business model, just because like every, although the, that lending is really done on your personal income. And so the rule of thumb here is that after two or three, what's called residential properties, everybody has to start getting into multifamily. And for us, the line is like residential is considered a single family home all the way to a fiveplex. So in that zone, you're always borrowing against your own income. And so for me, this was a problem like very early because like as an employee, I never really earned that much money. And so then very quickly, we have to get into the multifamily space, which is six doors and over. And then when you're in that space, it's they finance basically the project. So they'll finance the building and it doesn't go on your personal debt ratios. And I always like to say they would lend my dog money if they had a good business plan and they had the down payment money to close on a particular thing. So that's good for your dog's estate plan. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's something you said, though, that you gave me a word. So I didn't do the house thing, but I did car hacking to get to yeah. college. Basically, yeah. I, I purchased a car in the off season, then I sold it in the high season and I would make yeah. $2,000 with every sale. And I think I went through 20 cars in college. So I never heard of that, you know, underscore hacking. That's, that's cool. I like yeah. that. And now with Turo, like it's even if you're into like a car, car hacking, like Turo, you know, the app where you can rent your car, yep. like there's a lot of people who do that. They'll own like three, four cars and then Turo them. So it's like the, the equivalent to Airbnb. Huh. I have never heard of that as a business opportunity, but yeah, I guess people are doing that and yeah. not driving, just renting the cars. Yeah, exactly. Huh. What's a car go for? Totally offhand. Do you, do you have any idea? Look, I don't know. I because my husband's a mechanic, so like he has friends who does Got this, it. and he tunes up the Turo fleets. But there's actually been like with COVID a real problem with rental cars because a lot of the companies with lack of tourism sold off their fleets, and so like basically like the at least in Canada like the price of rental cars like skyrocketed, and oh, so that's when yeah. 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 And that's when like the Turos really took off because, you know, you could just undercut the exorbitant rate of the rental car companies and be full, like be rented all the time. So tell us about your book, because 
I'm still, I don't, people ask me all the time, how does mindfulness and money go together? Yeah. How does mindful landlord go together? Yeah. And the, what's the development? You know, what made you think, yeah, I can write a book on this. I'm so good at this. I can write a book. Yeah. Well, there's, I mean, I think there's two things, right? I think the first thing is that the real estate industry, which I'm sure like the financial planning industry is very consumed with, you know, financialization, right? Like people are looking at, I call it the 3Ds, more deals, more doors, more dollars. And when you attend any kind of like real estate education stuff, it's always, you know, the presenters are always, how big are your deals? How many doors do you have? How many, what's the size of your portfolio? And for me, those are not necessarily the right metrics because, I mean, I got to financial freedom with nine doors, which is not a huge portfolio. And it gave me a great lifestyle, you know, up until the point when I decided that I wanted to grow the portfolio a bit more. But like for me, for like 15 years, that was enough. And I don't feel like that story gets told. And I don't feel like people who have those objectives are really coached through how to get to them, you know, and not to belittle people who own a thousand doors and, you know, we're able to get there and are really pushing the package. But I think that a lot of like the voice of small is beautiful is kind of missing in the real estate coaching sphere. So that's one aspect. And the other aspect is, you know, coming from a, like I said, combat sport, martial arts background, if you want to succeed in that environment, your mindset has to be so clean. And I really went through, you know, a 10 year development period where like I was, you know, kind of building my martial arts career. But at the same time, you have to like build your mind into something very strong. And I used this, you know, Dan Millman warrior, peaceful warrior methodology. And really like, once I saw the power of that, and I also realized how like so many people are walking around with unaligned minds. And it's a crime to me that, you know, in real estate coaching, like lots of people have all kinds of things to say about the tactics of how to get from A to B. But if you don't have the mindset to apply those tactics because you're self-defeating in whatever way, you're never going to get there. And, you know, from the combat sports arena where like your results really don't lie, like it's very direct. But to me, some of the problem with success in business is that you can lie to yourself or you will just be a bit below where you could be, but you won't really know why. And until you examine what's going on in your mind, you're not going to be able to sort of beat the demon at the end of the of the video game level to move up to the next level. So it was to share some of those ideas. And so tell me about the kind of real estate you invest in, because I think that there's a lot of people that invest in like whatever high-end real estate. And I know that that's not where you play. And I'm just curious about if mindfulness falls into that at all. Well, so I work mostly in like the affordable housing, low income space. And it's not like that was some big grandmaster plan. It's mostly because when I started investing, you know, I knew a, an up and coming area of, of town and I had to pitch my dad on a project that was going to make money. And so I was like, okay, I know this particular part of town. I would dare to go there. Nobody else dares to go there. Let's do this. And then I saw that it was working and my portfolio grew in this like not super part of town. And so then I kind of became at ease with it and became familiar with, you know, what you, what kind of problems you can see, how you can deal with those problems. And then, you know, after 20 years later and, and having observed what happened during COVID, I guess like, you know, I got a bit more compassion and a bit more understanding for the position that my tenants find themselves in. And by watching also what I call the, you know, the squeeze, which is that when I got into investing, buildings were sold at much lower times multiples. And so you could buy a building and let it run. 
because it was cash flowing and there was not this hyper competitive thing. Whereas now when we buy buildings, the valuations are much higher. And so in order to make that building profitable, you have to squeeze the tenants to raise the rents. And like certainly in Montreal, which is like kind of like New York, like we're a highly rent controlled environment. It turns into this like kind of icky practice where people have to do, you know, rent evictions and they have to really like squeeze all the juice. And then you're watching these people who are like barely hanging on, lose their last grips because now the rent is eating 60% of their monthly income. And, you know, then try and understand what's happening to be sensitive to the fact that like, I don't want to necessarily destroy this affordable housing segment, but at the same time, is rent control really the best solution? I'm not sure. So yeah. Yeah. I think we'll talk a lot more about that at the, on the mindful wealth podcast. (laughs) So those folks that are interested in that, you'll hear us talk about that quite a bit. Hey, one of the things we try to do on this podcast is we try to bring money back into the context of life. And you said a word a little while ago, enough. And I'm just curious, how do you even recognize enough? And -hmm. then let's say you recognize it and you're lucky enough to recognize it. What do you do once you recognize it? Yeah. Well, so Jonathan, you and I have a back and forth about luck, but (laughs) I think enough, like getting to enough has nothing to do with luck in the sense of being cognizant of it right? Like, I think that we live in a context that's always trying to push us for more, more, more. And how did I know what was enough? Well, it was a lot of work. It was a lot of work. And it was a lot of like introspection and a lot of mindfulness that was, you know, allowed me to be like, no, actually, I don't need more dollars to be happy. And the things that are going to move my happiness needle are not financial. So you said it, it was a lot of work. It's not that it was a lot of work to get to enough. It was a lot of work to see what enough was. Exactly. Exactly. It's like, you know, it was not get, this was not a bank amount. It's really a state of mind. Yeah. And for me, it was that, you know, like I was make at one point I was, you know, I, I tell the story of when my son was one and uh, I had worked harder in the first year of his life than ever before, doubled my business figure. And at the end of the year, I was like, man, I like, I'm not happy. And I don't feel like he got what he like should have had yeah. out of this year. And like, no, I'm done. Like I'm done running after metrics that ultimately are not the right metrics. Right. So part of it is, you know, put your ladder on the right wall. It's, yeah. it's know what metrics you want to go after. And the three D's may not be the right, exactly. may not be the right metrics for everybody. I could see somebody wants to build something, but you got to recognize that some part of this has to be happiness. Some part yeah. of it has to be my family life. Some part of it has to be, you know, uh, success has to be derived from something other than finance. Right. Yeah. No, and it has to be located within a life that makes sense, right? And like, you know, God knows in competitive sports, like you have to mortgage a lot of things in your life to that particular goal. And, but you can still do it in a way that's healthy, you know? And I think in business, it's the same thing. People end up mortgaging a lot of stuff to, you know, get to whatever goal they want to get to. But like, you can do that in a way that's healthy for your community, healthy for your family, healthy for you and supportive of well-being and not just, you know, a metric to the exclusion of all else. So at the same time, you know, I think that we both have a position where we're pretty privileged to have enough or to be in that position of having enough and, and recognizing that we have enough. But there seem, and this may be more true in the U.S. than in Canada, but there seems to be a lot of folks who believe that they don't have enough. Whether it's true or not, it doesn't. You know, that doesn't matter. They, they believe they don't have enough. They believe they need more, and I, I think it's probably true in many cases. So, how can you counsel somebody, whether it's through real estate investing or just getting their spending right? Hey, this is a good path to enough. Because I do think there's people mm-hmm. that are behind and want to catch up, but may not know what's the best way to do that. Yeah. I mean, it's a tough question, you know, because I, like, I feel like a lot of the people that I work with very clearly 
don't have enough in their lives. Like a lot of my tenants are scraping by, right? But I don't feel like that question is really on their radar. And after that, it's a question of like, why is that? You know, is it because they're so tied up in the day to day and they don't have their head out of water where they can ask those macro questions? Is it because somehow like their context didn't give them, you know, the, the horizon that it's possible to change your surroundings or didn't enable them or they, you know, digested some kind of negative self-concept and they're suffering from that? I don't know. You know, I'm not a social worker, you know, for me, like what I I do feel like I know something about is that when someone knocks on my door and says, Terry, show me the way to enough through real estate investing. Like, I feel like then I can sort of frame a way forward and it ends up being some mixture of overcoming whatever personal obstacles are in your mind and doing the right thing on the ground. And like, you know, with the the mindfulness approach and having gone through this optimization process myself, I can usually kind of point to this is where you're stuck. This is where you're stuck go address this mental issue, come back, talk to me, let's put an offer on a building, right? But like, if the person doesn't come to my office and knock on my door, I don't really know what can encourage them to make that move. Because I feel like that's really where, you know, people get hung up. Yeah, I mean, I think the reality is you have to ask the question first. And if you never ask the question, you never find the answer. And I think I struggle with that same concern. Like, how do we stimulate the question? Exactly. And I I don't know, Jonathan. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know either. So one of the things we want to do here is we want to simplify, simplify, simplify. You know, there's a ton of financial noise out there in real estate investing, you know, stock markets, economy, you know, Fed, interest rates. There's just so much crap out there. Bitcoin, ETF, there's just so much stuff. So what has been for you the single most important lesson you've learned that somebody that is shareable in a soundbite and people can walk away from today and say, you know what, I'm going to implement this thing and Mm -hmm. this thing is going to actually make a difference. Like the single biggest mover that enables, you know, your success. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to give you like a general answer and then I'll explain to you like how that applies, right? Like I think, I don't know where I got, where I heard this, but it comes from someone else, but it's just do the next right thing. And I think that very often, like, you know, when we're trying to attain a goal and the goal can be a financial goal, the goal can be a health goal, a personal goal, whatever it is, you know, there's so many things on the horizon, so many levers you can pull on, so many ways you can complexify things for yourself. But if you just ask yourself, like, what is the next, very next myopic step I can take to get one bit closer to my goal? Chances are you can answer that question. And if it's in the direction of real estate, you know, be it networking, be it talking to someone, be it getting some kind of education, if you're really at the beginning, or else if you're a little bit further along, just like make some offers, you know, make some crazy offers and see if what answers you get. And, you know, don't be afraid to make a mistake, but it's really that business of just get moving and do the next right thing. So does that still work? Not the, the next right thing works. Absolutely. I understand that. But the make the crazy offer. I mean, I read my dad gave me we 40 real estate books when I was in high school. Here, read these. This is the way, this is the path to wealth for you. And you just do these things. And and at that time they were saying, yeah, make some crazy offers. Like if someone's asking a million bucks for something, you know, offer them 250,000. And does that actually work anymore? Or is that an illusion? <laughs> well, I mean, it works in the sense that like often people are afraid to make offers because they're afraid someone's going to say right. yes. And so what I tell my clients when they have that kind of barrier of getting started is go make some crazy offers and like have someone say no, 
because it's as if making the first offer is the really stressful part because that's when they're like getting in their own way with the anxiety. But once you've done three stupid offers and people have said no to all of them, the fourth one, you're going to be like, no, okay, I'm comfortable with this process. Let's like actually make an offer that might get accepted. But so it's part of that do the next right thing because if you don't get moving, you're always going to get in your own way. Yeah. Well, it's, I'm and not telling you offers. Not the stupid offers are not to get accepted. The stupid offers are to get over the fear of making offers. It's practice. <laughs> it's just practice. I love it. I never heard that before. That's great. So, but given, so that's the do the next right thing is the thing to do. But in the context of there's so much noise, there's so much crap that people are telling you, you should do this. And, you know, I've listened to 40, 50 different real estate podcasts with different ways and different methods and different importance and different metrics, right? So, what are some of the metrics that people are talking about that you should just ignore that don't matter that you should just, you know, Set this to the side. Worry about this in 10 years. Don't think about this right now. Well, I mean, it really depends where people are starting from. You know, like I think people, when they want to get into real estate investing, it's very difficult because it's a huge spectrum, right? Like you can go from the student who is a house hacker. And like, I do have 20 year olds who come and talk to me and are like, Terry, I have no down payment money. My parents can't help me right now. What can I do? And then the advice is house hacking advice. Or I have people who come to me and they're like, you know, uh, I just sold my business. I have a crazy amount of money. Like, should I start a REIT or should I buy my own portfolio or do whatever? And it's, a, you know, a different set of answers depending on where people are and what their experience level is. So I don't know. That's why, like, I do come back to the next right thing because, like, wherever you are, that's always going to work, right? Like, and it, it corrects for the fact that people are just on a very different spectrum depending on where they're starting from. So I'm going to ask, it's the same question for a little different angle because I was expecting something a little different, but I'm going to try to get to it here. Sure. There's a lot of shysters out there. Yes. (laughs) There's a lot of people saying, hey, just do it my way. And by the way, pay me a couple thousand dollars for coaching and do it my way and you're going to be rich. How do I tell when I'm listening to a shyster or somebody that's just telling me a good story, how do I tell if it's for real? And how do I say, you know what, this is not for real? Yeah. Okay. So number one, don't throw away your down payment money on coaching because often it's people being lazy because the information you want is there for 20 bucks in a few real estate books and it's there for free on podcasts. So you don't need to pay fifteen, twenty thousand $20,000 to a, like a shyster who's going to take your money and give you knowledge that's there for very low cost or for free. So that's number one, just, you know, do the work and you can educate yourself for very little money. And then if you do feel like you want to take, you know, the next step, and I'm, I work in partnership with a real estate organization that does education in Montreal, and it's the cheapest one. And I do feel like it gives the best coaching And so it's not about the dollar figures. It's about what network are you going to build? And are you going to get the specific knowledge that you're going to be able to implement in your market? And then the best way of doing that is talk to previous grads of whatever program it is. And like, for sure, don't pick the most expensive one. And if you do get coaching, be like very scrupulous and very like, do your due diligence about what organization you're going to work with. And don't think that the dollar figure behind it has anything to do with the quality. Right. A $20,000 course will not teach you more than a $20 book. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, after that, you have to have the discipline to do it. And the one problem with books and podcasts is that like real estate really is a people business and you cannot succeed without building a network. And, you know, one of doing, especially like local education in the location that you want to invest. Like I watch people come through the coaching program that like I teach for and the network that they build within, it's like a 10 week program where they have like, you know, whatever, 10 Fridays where they come for a full day to a location and like the network that they build and the connections they build through that is really what then enables those 
who succeed to succeed. So like, you know, it is kind of nice to be in a kind of a community, even if you do end up paying a bit for it, but don't pay fifteen, twenty thousand dollars for it. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like we've added a number two to the number one thing that we should do, you know, do the next right thing and then, you know, have a network, build a network, yes. build a network, know people, get yeah. to know people. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. And tell everybody, like, don't be a closet real estate investor, right? Like tell everybody what you're doing. I know like I'm the first one who suffered from imposter syndrome for years, you know, and like people knew me at the gym. Nobody had any idea what my day job was because I was just like ashamed and I only had nine doors and it wasn't big enough. But then once you kind of like, you know, open up and really tell people what you do, what you're looking for, things kind of fall into place because people, you're top of mind, like when people are thinking of that particular thing. I had more than nine doors when I started winding it down. Like uh, I got, I sort of hated it and I decided not to go that way, but I'm shocked to hear that you had this feeling of being having enough with nine doors, but uh, that's fantastic. Yeah. That's knowing both sides of the ledger. <laughs> hey, what are you working on right now? I know that you just redid the, you redid the book. So what's new in your world? Yeah. Well, it's, it's actually like very exciting. I'm working on uh, my next book project, which is going to be called Squeezed. And so it's kind of what I alluded to a little bit earlier on, which is this crunch that the real estate industry, affordable housing space is feeling where on the one hand, you know, us as investors, we are forced to act in a different way, which changes the investing environment. And then the tenants, you know, on the other who are feeling the tightening of that. And basically this like, you know, optimization, financial metrics, noose is kind of squeezing everybody. And so basically the book is looking at housing policy, looking at economic trends, and then undercutting, like interspersing that with chapters of from like my life as a property manager. So some experiences with tenants, some tenant stories, some, you know, stories for managers, and just to really see like, what does the reality of that look like? And that it's not what people think it is. You know, if you think the evil landlord, this, like, if you could see what our day to day was like, like, I invite anyone who thinks landlords are evil to come and like, do my job for a week, because it's really not that simple. Yeah. Well, narratives, narratives often hide yeah. a lot of true story. So yeah. So just really quick, I want to ask a couple more personal things before we wrap. So <laughs> just a couple quick things. First, what was the last thing you changed your mind about? <laughs> wow, that's a really good question. Yeah, no, like personal um, guilt, actually, <laughs> in uh, personal relationships. Yeah. So I'm like, I'm going through this funny thing now where I'm like, I'm reading books about, you know, feeling guilty and how you need to separate kind of feeling negative feelings from feeling guilt and how that then feeds into your personal relationships so that you don't end up doing things you don't want to be doing out of feeling bad. So I don't know if that's a, yeah. No, that's great. That's not one I have heard before. That's beautiful. And then the <laughs> last thing before we do wrap is just, I want to know if there's, if there's something about you that you want people to know that they're, you're afraid to say, or that you've told people and they forget, but it's something that's really important to you that you want people to know about you. Wow. Jonathan, that's really out of nowhere. It's tough. Something that I want people to know about me. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm a, you know, for a long time I was like a closet introvert and I feel like I've done my best to get over, you know, the shyness and that, but like the little shy kid is still alive and well inside me. And so if you do see me at an event or something, come and say hello, because the, like, the introvert is actually hiding inside. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, there's a common theme that many people say that I'm actually way more sensitive than I appear. Yeah, like I, I'm way more cautious than I appear because you know, we all wear a mask and we go out into the world and we pretend but yeah, totally. I get that. How do people connect with you? I want them to make sure that they can find you for coaching or just for whatever. 
Yeah. So the best thing is on social media, if you reach out to me on LinkedIn, Terry Shower on LinkedIn. And if you want to check out the book, I have a website for it that is mindfullandlord.com. So you can check out either of those things. We'll make sure it's all in the show notes. Thank you, Terry. I appreciate the conversation. Go get your son. Thanks, Jonathan. (laughs) Namaste. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned, are available at mindful.money. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash mindfulmoney. We'll be sure to read those out on future episodes.